with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here. and Welcome to another edition of Eye on Travel for this last weekend of February 2024. I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 33 degrees, 26 minutes north, 112 degrees, 4 minutes west. We are in the middle of the Sonoran Desert in the urban heart of the southwest, coming to you from the legendary Arizona Biltmore Hotel right here in Phoenix, Arizona. And of course, uh, a significant weekend for us and for this hotel because it opened 95 years ago this weekend. That's right, it was built in 1929. It's an architectural masterpiece. We're talking Frank Lloyd Wright. We're talking about a, a design that is timeless. It really does have a timeless allure. There's just so much to talk about. We will be talking about this hotel uh, throughout the show. I've been coming to this hotel since I was 21 years old. I was blown away by it then. I'm blown away by it now. They've just undergone a major renovation, but they haven't changed the, the feel of it. They haven't changed the flow of it, and uh, and I'm a fan of coming to it all year round, not just in the winter months, but in any case, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But a true architectural icon and a landmark here in the middle of the desert. Lots of stuff to talk about in the news. Uh, American Airlines raising their fees again. Uh, this time, bag fees. Going to go up to 40 bucks a bag. Uh, and, and, and what's crazy about it is, you know, when you ask them why, it's because they can. And there's, look, there's no regulation of the airlines. Uh, we've had and had it since 1978 anyway, but now it's getting out of control. And the airlines will do anything they can to raise fees because they're not taxed at a high federal excise tax as they are on their airline tickets. And you know that when one airline starts this, they all follow suit. So you can expect United and Delta and JetBlue to, uh, to do that soon. And... Of course, the only airline that's the holdout, in fact, they've branded their entire airline around it, is Southwest. Uh, you know, they're still not charging for checked bags. But there's another reason that it's, a, that it's somewhat insidious about the, the increase in the bag fees. Because at the same time that the airlines are, are adding bag fees, they're also adding the number of seats inside each airplane, which makes it physically impossible Believe me, we've done the math, and we've actually done the size and motion. It makes it physically impossible, even if you're only carrying one carry-on bag per passenger, to get them to all fit in the overhead compartments. They've exceeded the tolerance, the physical tolerance of the plane. So it's, it's a mess. And yet the airlines continue to make more money. And at the same time, American Airlines did something else, which I'll have to call insidious, uh, it, you know, it's tough enough to earn miles. It's even worse to try to redeem them. But now they're making it tougher to earn miles by saying that if you don't book it through a number of their approved portals, meaning your airfare, you may not get any mileage at all. And if you book a basic economy ticket, by the way, Delta Airlines already did this, you get no miles either. I mean, look, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Forgetting the mileage stuff, friends do not let friends fly basic economy. I mean, unless you're in the witness relocation program or you're a fugitive from justice, pay the extra $30 differential. Do not fly basic economy because you lose all your rights. 
And here's another story that might infuriate you. It has to do with the, the brave new world of AI and ChatGPT, but an interesting court case that just happened in Canada. Air Canada was ordered by the courts to pay compensation to a customer after the airline's chatbot supplied bogus information. And by the way, the airline already admitted wrong information was given to a customer. And then Air Canada then tried to brush it off, claiming that the bot was responsible for its own words and actions. I don't think so. And neither did the court. You know, this gets back down to what's going on with customer service. American Airlines, you know, here we are in Phoenix. American Airlines last week laid off 656 frontline customer service agents in Dallas and Phoenix and then issued a press release saying it was to elevate the passenger experience. How stupid do they think we are? And now Air Canada tries to legally justify giving out wrong information through a bot that they made their passenger go to and then claiming the bot was responsible for its own actions. Oh, my. And, and, and the airline actually tried to claim that the bot was a separate legal entity and that the airline should not be liable. I don't think so. Well, thank God the, uh, the court ruled in, in, in favor of the passenger, and hopefully it sets some precedent there that if you're going to lead passengers, force them, steer them to go to a bot, and the bot gives them bad information, you bet you're liable. You bet you're liable. Okay, moving along. We got lots of stuff to talk about today. Interested in renting an EV, part of the electric vehicle craze? Well, I get it. Uh, and the guys at Hertz thought they got it too. They made an order back in 2021 and 2022 for 100,000 new Tesla vehicles because they wanted to jump on the EV bandwagon. And I understand that. People want to try out, the, they want to be first on their block and try out a new car, maybe even test drive it by renting it. One small problem. They didn't get a good response. And you know why? Not because of anything wrong with the cars, but because we still don't have a system of really great, reliable charging stations in this country. So if you wanted to rent a car just to drive around town and then charge it at night at your hotel, I suppose, that was one thing. But most people rent a car to take trips of over 200 miles or 300 miles, and they had no clue where the charging stations were. Not only that, they didn't want to wait for eight hours to recharge the car. So guess what Hertz just did? They sold 20,000 of those vehicles. So there's a silver lining here when you think about it. If you happen to be in the market for an EV, uh, there's some very low mileage used EVs on the market from Hertz. So check that out. But that'll give you an idea of, uh, you know, we're not, right, we're not quite there yet. Same thing with driverless vehicles, but that's an entirely different story. Again, we're coming to you from the Arizona Biltmore, right here in Phoenix, Arizona. And when we come back, a deep discussion about the brave new world of Phoenix these days with its mayor, Mayor Kate Gallego, who has a lot to say about growth, the desert, water, and transportation. And speaking of transportation, one big kudo to the Phoenix airport, number one airport in the United States for the fewest number of canceled flights. That's one win for the desert. What amazes me about Phoenix, every time I come back here, it's how much it's grown. 1.6 million people live here, and that number continues to grow, helped in no small part by the pandemic a couple of years ago. It's now the 10th largest metropolitan area in the United States. The airport's growing. Think about this. Not only nonstop service to London these days, they have nonstop service to Paris coming up. And Phoenix is on track to become the most sustainable desert city in the U.S. 
And when we come back, I'm going to sit down with Katie Gallego. She's the, the mayor of Phoenix. The, she's the second elected female mayor of the city and one of the youngest mayors in the United States. A lot to talk about, about growth, managing growth, and let's not forget the other elephant in the room, water. Remember, this is the desert. And how do you manage that? Still be sustainable and grow the city. When we come back, my conversation with the mayor of Phoenix, Katie Gallego. We'll be back with more of Ion Travel from the Biltmore Hotel right here in Arizona, as in Phoenix, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back. Peter Greenberg here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. You can always reach out to me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. As I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, the imaginatively named petergreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, giving you an opportunity to get up close and personal and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities. Phoenix is no exception. Check out the St. Mary's Food Bank right here in Phoenix. They've been doing this for over 50 years in the greater Phoenix area. They make a huge impact on the local community. Talk about food insecurity, serving over 300,000 meals every single day, six days a week. Uh, The Food Bank is part of the Feeding America program, and they function with the help of individual donors and volunteers like you. You can volunteer in so many different ways. And of course, as I say every week, when you do that, you're hanging out with the very people who live here. Who best to give you the best tour of Phoenix ever than the people you just helped out? If you want more information, just go to firstfoodbank.org or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. I'm honored and pleased to have as our next guest, the Honorable Mayor of Phoenix, Arizona, Kate Gallego. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome to Phoenix. Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, and, and of course, most people who get welcome to Phoenix, they land at Sky Harbor. And I remember when I first came to Sky Harbor back in 1971, the airport looked like a train station. And it, it's just like this, like New Mexico, Albuquerque's airport looked like a train station. Now your airport is kicking ass. Your airport is just ranked in the Wall Street Journal as like the number one airport. It is, and we are not resting. We are continuing to make improvements to make sure you have great local food and beverage. I know you want to talk about Mother food. Nature I know helps. you want to talk about food, but before we get to food, though, the reason why it became number one, right, had the fewest number of flight cancellations of any large airport. Now, I'm sure your weather had something to do with it, but the good news is you're going to more or less be on time at Phoenix. There was a huge team that made that possible from our ground crew to the fact that we have so many of the national hot, um, maintenance crews in Phoenix. But the weather really helps a lot. We are the sunniest big city in the country, so it's a very boring job to be a weather person in Phoenix. Today it will be sunny with a few clouds in the sky. 
Oh, so you also double as the weather person. It's, it's very easy because we, among big cities, have the most sun. But the, the airport team worked very hard. It was a win for air traffic control, for our team at the city of Phoenix and our airline partners. So we're not, we're not resting, though. Well, listen, you've got the real estate for air, airlines because there are a lot of airlines that actually train out here. You know, Lufthansa for years was doing all their flight training here in Arizona because you had the real estate to play. If you look at it, most of the large airlines have some kind of training presence in the greater Phoenix area. So United has their Aviate Academy. American Airlines has a huge training presence. We have a very large number of both simulators and different training facilities. So yeah, if you say hello to your pilot on the way in or out of a, <laughs> a plane, it is very likely that that pilot had some portion of the training in Phoenix because of the great sunny weather and open skies. And I think the beautiful vistas doesn't hurt when you're trying to attract pilots when they decide where to get that training. Okay, enough with the brochure language. We're going to move. Two, did they ever put you in a simulator? Have you flown one? I have flown a simulator. Um, I have done both the, the commercial pilots ones, and then we have some military air, um, air manufacturers here, so they offered me to bomb the city of Phoenix. But as mayor, I just, you can't do it. <laughs> and then they flew, you, you I recently... You came so close, but you couldn't pull the switch. I did not. I For all of the people... In Phoenix, who are listening to this, I, I did not bomb the city. <laughs> I also recently just flew. Honeywell has a simulator for their unmanned vehicles, and it was the most boring experience because it's showing you how it can just fly itself. Well, that's, that's scary enough. All the unmanned vehicles we're going to have to deal with in the next couple of years. We're excited. Phoenix is the largest autonomous vehicle zone in the world. Really? I didn't know that. So we were the first airport anywhere where you can take an autonomous vehicle from the airport to our downtown. It's a partnership with Waymo, which is affiliated with Google. Apparently, the U.S. federal government still requires a steering wheel in every vehicle, so there is a steering wheel, but it just turns itself. Have you done it? I have done it many times. Did it, admit it. Did it scare you the first time? You know, I used to work before I ran for mayor in a, an R&D department at a energy company, and so I have been working on this development of electric vehicles and seen it happen, and maybe that helped me be a little bit more confident. This is a, an issue of great debate with my father, who will not try one. <laughs> he just won't do it. Well, I just figure if you look at drivers like myself, you get tired or you have a bad day at work. Autonomous vehicles don't have a drink. They don't break up with their girlfriend. Ooh, there's marketing right there. I love that. I love that. Speaking of transportation, because you've got the real estate to play with, and we're seeing this, by the way, in Las Vegas, the Las Vegas airport is now like the 10th busiest airport in the world. I mean, you never would have seen that 20 years ago. But now you're getting some service coming in from nonstop service overseas. Absolutely. We just announced nonstop to Paris on Air France. They reminded me champagne in every class of service. Did you make that part of the deal? <laughs> you know, that was a bonus that I learned after um, we did ne negotiate that. Uh, we just announced nonstop service to Tijuana, and I gather we're the only place in the United States that offers that. So 143 destinations out of Sky Harbor, and many people who are changing flights, if they're picking between a snowy destination to connect and Phoenix, they pick us. Well, I'm going to give that. you my secret. And I learned it a couple of years ago. I was trying to go from Los Angeles to Hawaii to Honolulu, and every airline flies it, right? American, United, Delta, Alaska, Southwest, they all and Hawaiian, they all fly it. The airfares were outrageously expensive. I was probably the only person on the plane who was not a honeymoon couple, right? And then I got on the phone with, with um, 
with an American Airlines reservations agent. I said, is there any other way to get me there? Because these airfares are outrageous. She said, yeah. She, she routed me via Phoenix. It's great. I, I went Phoenix, Honolulu. And you know what? Less money. It was, it was cheaper. So you, you're looking at a different kind of a hub approach. Absolutely. And we're a very low-cost airport, and that gets passed on to you. Exactly. So let's go back a couple of years. You know, in the pandemic, everybody decided it was their, their opportunity to change their lifestyle, to change their living, cor- their living location, their, their choice of jobs, the great migration, the great resignation. A lot of people moved to Arizona. Absolutely. We welcomed people from all over the world, but uh, particularly we had a lot of folks coming to, from California to Arizona. And so we've been the fastest growing city many years or right up there. And is that still continuing? It does. I'm afraid the, the great quality of life has gotten out and the fact you can get a good job and really do well. We're relatively affordable, although by no means cheap. There's a, there's a marketing banner. We're relatively affordable. Oh, I don't think that's catchy. I think we can do better than that. I think you can, yeah. But let's talk about that. What are the challenges for you right now to maintain that lifestyle, to maintain the, the, obvi- the obvious air that Phoenix already had that you could breathe, you know, that you had space? We really have to invest ahead in things like transportation and water infrastructure. So we spend a lot of our time planning, in many cases, on a 100-year time frame, which... Most other cities don't do, but we got to think long-term. Luckily, we've seen the economy grow at the same time, so we're a, a semiconductor hub. In uh, 2025, the most advanced semiconductors in the United States will be made in Phoenix, and that will be products like your Apple iPhone, the chips that go into that will be made in Phoenix, so that growth into more high-wage industries has really helped us improve quality of life while we... Welcome new residents from all over the world. California number one, India number two. (laughs) And you're trying to become what? The most sustainable desert city in America? It's a real priority for me. My background, I have an environmental degree and actually came out to Arizona to work in solar energy. So that's something I hope to bring to this. But you're not from here. I am from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, the train station. (laughs) Yes. So Phoenix is the big city when you're from Albuquerque, but some of the same things I love, like the wide open vistas are, are true in both. You can find them in both Albuquerque and in Phoenix. When you first came here, what was the biggest surprise for you? We have more acres of parks than any other city in the United States, and that was sort of a wonderful surprise that you could just keep exploring and never leave the city. I have been here now decades, and I still find new trails to hike on. Wow. And, and, and they're available, and they're, and they're not crowded. So we have a few mountains that are really located quite close to uh, the central city, and those are the most popular. But as long as you're willing to go to our larger parks, like South Mountain Park is the largest among any big city in the U.S., and you can hike for quite a while without seeing anyone. So you can, you can pick, a, if you want, a crowded trail or a vibrant one. There's, I can recommend a few where you'll see people speaking five different languages from all over the world. But if you're more looking for solitude, isn't it incredible? In the fifth largest city, you can get it. I love it. We're talking to Mayor Kate Gallego here in the city of Phoenix. When we come back, I want to talk to you about the elephant in the room. It's a five-letter word. It's water. Excellent. When we come back, more from the Biltmore Hotel right here in Phoenix as Ion Travel continues right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. 
Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here with you from Phoenix and the Biltmore Hotel, talking to Mayor Kate Gallego here in the city of Phoenix. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I'm one of those people who believes, and I'm not saying this in a happy way, that the next war will never be fought over oil or politics or religion. It's going to be fought over water. And I'm sure that keeps you up at night because you're in the desert and the city keeps expanding. You're not alone. We've seen Las Vegas do the same thing. We've seen water levels drop in places like Lake Powell or Lake Mead. What Does that keep you up at night? Water planning is essential. We are a desert community, and so we think about water in everything we do. As I mentioned in the first segment, I have an environmental degree and, and worked in water, among other areas, before running for office. And I think that's part of how I got my job. People wanted someone in the mayor's chair who thinks about water all the time. But it goes way beyond saying don't water your lawn. For us in Arizona, 70% of water use is agricultural. So that's a very important industry and and we want food to be grown in the United States. But we got to get smarter about how we do it and how we predict how much water we will have. For us in Phoenix, we are trying to be as innovative as possible. So we're investing in the most advanced recycling technologies. We are working with our golf courses and Arizona State University to have polymers that help protect the water supply and reduce evaporation. And then we we do old-fashioned solutions as well, including looking for cooler building materials where we don't, where we can be smart. Is desalination an option? That is something that we are looking at. Arizona is not far from Mexico, and we've talked with some of our partners there about collaborating on desalination. We also do something similar. We have um, some very salty agricultural water to the west of Phoenix, and we're looking at how we can desalinate and use that more effectively. So now I'm going to shift gears because I know you're a foodie. Where do you like to go to eat here in Phoenix? So for people who are traveling to Phoenix, one thing I recommend is we have one of the largest Native American communities of any city and some of the best Native American chefs. So if if I'm challenging you right now and saying what's the best Native American cuisine you've ever had and you don't have an answer, then you got to book a ticket to Phoenix and we'll (laughs) we'll get you the answer. We have Fry Fry Bread House, which is from a To'ona Odom couple that creates just incredible... Fry bread sandwiches or tacos. We have um, on the Gila River Indian community uh, a four diamond incredible cuisine that uses local products that indigenous people have grown for generations. You can't get food like this in some of the best foodie cities outside of Arizona, but you can get great cuisine on almost every block in in certain areas of Phoenix. All right, so it's morning. We're going to breakfast in Phoenix. Where are you taking me? Morning Glory Cafe at the farm at South Mountain. So it's a beautiful agricultural property that has produce grown on site. The chickens that lay your eggs, you can meet them if you want to. Um, It has a citrus grove on site. So we're talking about seriously high quality orange juice. Are you in? You coming? I'm there. But now we're going to lunch. Where am I taking you? Well, uh, we are at the the Arizona Biltmore, and they have some incredible restaurants, including one that um, Renata's Hearth that really uses 
great sense and and is very intentional about how you're greeted with uh, sometimes it's a scent of creosote as you walk in and then incredible Latin-inspired cuisine. Now, of course, in the global village in which we all live, you can get ethnic food from every country in every city, right? The best Chinese food I ever had was in Amman, Jordan. Who knew, right? The best Italian food was in Lucerne. So where are we going for sushi here? So we have um, the number one ranked sushi place, according to Yelp last year, is in Phoenix, Arizona. <laughs> um, it's it's um, a very casual place, so if you want that experience... We also have two very famous chefs in our neighboring community of Scottsdale that can offer the high-end fixed-price menu with fresh produce flown in from often Japan so the day gonna, of. So you go to so Scottsdale go. to get the estimate on the Diet Coke? So the, uh, the, um, we have a wonderful chef, Nobu, who's a James Beard Award winner, and, and we do have to leave the city of Phoenix to our neighbors of Scottsdale for his cuisine, but, but for the number one on Yelp, you can stay in Phoenix. <laughs> All right, and dinner? After we've had sushi, we're having absolutely. We, we just got through young. We just got through lunch. Uh, the Desert Botanical Garden in Phoenix has a wonderful restaurant, Gertrude's Cafe, and you can see the sunset over saguaro cacti, which are the beautiful, big, tall cacti. And by the way, for all of those on the East Coast who don't understand the pronunciation of that word, it is saguaro, not saguaro. That is a test often yeah. when you have a. I'm very impressed that you realize that because often we can tell how much time a reporter has spent in Arizona. <laughs> based on the pronunciation of that very specific word. Also, I said earlier, Gila River Indian community, not, and not, if you're from out of town. <laughs> yes. So you, you've, you've passed your test. You have your Arizona credentials. Absolutely. Uh, so what's your biggest challenge? We are one of the fastest-growing communities, and so balancing all of that with making sure we deliver on quality life, and that comes from all types of infrastructure and just making sure the education system and everything can meet the needs of our new residents while I gotcha. improving. All right. Well, I'll see you for the, uh, for the Indian cuisine, the Native American cuisine. Mayor Kate Gallego, Mayor of the City of Phoenix, Arizona, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with more of Ion Travel from the Biltmore right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the legendary Biltmore Hotel here in Phoenix. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest, always like having him on because he's always got the newest on a subject that continues to be, for so many travelers, a little intimidating, a little confusing, and, you know, during the pandemic, a lot confusing, but things are changing. Richard Aquino, the vice president of Allianz, I still believe, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Richard, are you the largest travel insurance company in the world? Uh, yes, we are. See, I told you that. I give you one, I give you one self-promoting statement, and you did it. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into it because you know it's a question I'm still asked literally every day by our our readers 
and our listeners and our viewers about when they should buy it, what they should buy, how they should buy it. You know, most people don't understand the definitions. You and I have talked about this before, about, you know, all the confusion that happened during the pandemic, uh, how the insurance industry now has pivoted in the wake of that. In many cases, not in all cases, but in many cases to address changing market conditions, changing health conditions, changing coverage conditions. So update me if you can on one basic policy, which which everybody sees anytime they go online to make a reservation, and that is trip cancellation and interruption insurance. What's different these days? Well, I think most people do buy a, a policy for, for trip interruption or, or trip cancellation. That That's what they're thinking of when, when people purchase the policy. But I, I have to say our policies at, at Allianz are, are so much more than that. And, and what I mean by that is, let's, let's say you're, uh, you become uh, ill on a trip. Maybe, maybe not you know, needing to go to the emergency room, but you can still call our assistants. And we have you know, telemedicine. You can talk to a doctor. They can figure out if you need a prescription and write your prescription. Or they could tell you, yeah, you need to go to the emergency room. And, and that's just one aspect of many that, that – that we bring you at Allianz. And, and I think it's really making stronger products that kind of are with you through the journey, not just for cancellation, but for, for travel delays and inconveniences and, and lost luggage. Okay, so, well, let, let me stop you there for one sec. Let me stop you right there. Go back to the, what you talked about getting a doctor on the phone. I've never heard of that uh, from an insurance company. Well, it, it, it's, it's a little new, and actually it's new for us. Um, we've actually been piloting uh, the, the program for a few months, and now we're rolling it out on a, on a larger scale. But, uh, you know, let's say you're in a foreign country, you're just not feeling well, you, you, you're you not sure what to do. So you can, you know, rate, we have an app, our Travel Smart app. Um, you can, you know, call us right from that. And, you know, you could say, hey, you know, I'd like to like to see a doctor and talk to the assistance center, and, and we can arrange that for you right from the phone. Wow. And so that means that whether I can even reach my own personal physician or not, if I'm in the middle of Uganda, there's somebody 24-7 I can talk to. Correct. Correct. Because, you know, insurance is important, but Allianz is, is the largest global assistance company in the world. So whether you need a, you know, a translator or a nurse by your bedside or you're ill and need a nurse to travel back to the United States, I mean, again, the, the, the policy covers so much. All right, so let me do a devil's advocate question here because if I go online to make an airline reservation and it pops up about do I want to opt in or opt out of the insurance, I haven't seen that language that tells me what you just told me. Well, it just it's part of our system. And I think you'll you'll definitely hear more about it in the in the upcoming months. Um, but uh, you know, again, when, when there's only so much you can say when when you're thinking about buying travel insurance, you know, there's you know, there's only so many catchy catchphrases that you could say, if you will, to get your attention. But you know, and I know nobody reads the document, but you know, even if you read your your cover page of your policy, you just see all of the benefits that are there, um, and that's just one of the many. I got you. That's that that look. That's news to me. I love it because that's one more layer of protection I didn't know I had through that policy. And and I don't know of any other insurance company that that offers that. Uh, they offer other things, but not that. Uh, so that's pretty cool. All right, let's move on. Uh, there are so many different opportunities for an airline to lose your bag. We know that. 
Um, and, they, and they, by the way, they use all of those opportunities with me. <laughs> but in, in any case, if I buy the trip cancellation and, and interruption policy from you, you cover me for that too. Yeah. And, you know, my, my disclaimer here is, you know, read the policy. We have a lot of different policies, but the majority of them cover baggage, right? So if your bags are lost, you know, depending on your policy, you know, you get a hundred dollars or a few hundred dollars or, you know, a thousand dollars, again, depending on your policy. And it's everything from little inconveniences to actually replacing uh, luggage and items in, in, in your suitcase. It, it really depends if you're, whether it's delayed or lost forever, if you will. Hold on to that thought for a second. We're talking to Richard Aquino from Allianz. When we come back, we're going to talk about flight delays and trip cancellations in the worst sense. Back with more from the Biltmore in Phoenix, Arizona, right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you from, I keep saying it because it's true, the legendary Biltmore in Phoenix, Arizona. From an architectural perspective alone, it's worth it. We've been joined by Richard Aquino from Allianz talking about, well, some of my favorite topics, trip cancellation and and interruption insurance. So in the last segment, you know, we talked about an unusual benefit, which I didn't, didn't know that you had, which is the ability to talk to a medical professional if I'm holding that policy from wherever I happen to be in the world. And then, of course getting some compensation for, you know, a, a flight delay or a lost bags. But let's go back to the real delays and the real cancellations. Um, we all remember what happened back in the in December of 2022 when Southwest Airlines had that incredible meltdown and thousands of people were disenfranchised. And we're talking, you know, multiple millions of dollars of, of liability and loss. I'm sure you guys were involved in that for some of your policyholders. We, we definitely were for, for quite a few. I, I mean, one of the benefits to the, to the policies are, you know, for, for travel delays and lost luggage and such, you know, uh, in fact, some of our policies have an automatic payment. So if, you're tra- if your flight is delayed, say, three hours or six hours, depending on your policy, we have direct uh, claim payments where if, if you have your flight information with us, then we can automatically send you $100 per person on the policy. And some of our policies, kids are uh, complimentary. So if you're traveling with a family of five and your flight is delayed four hours and you're stuck in, in an airport, and we all know how expensive that could be, then you're going to get a text that says, by the way, you qualify. Would you like us to direct deposit $500 into your account today, or would you like us to mail you a check? And again, that's for a family traveling a five on that policy that is offered through our, uh, many, many different travel advisors. Um, in the industry. And is that over and above what you may already be covered for, let's say, if you bought the ticket on a credit card that offered that kind of coverage as well? Yeah, we're, we're not, this for this inconvenience fee, it, 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 you, we're, not, we're not saying no because you're double covered. So basically, not that you planned on it, you could double dip. <laughs> I mean, 
I mean, not, <laughs> yes, you, you, I guess. You, yeah, you can. I mean, yeah. mo- look, there are credit cards out there now. There's the Chase Sapphire Reserve. There's Capital One Venture X, American Express Platinum. Most people don't realize that's a card benefit, that if your flight is delayed more than three hours, and then it's a sliding scale. And then the other thing people don't realize is that if you're overseas, especially in Europe, there's European Community Rule Number 261. We don't have that protection as a passenger rights issue in the United States, but they do it in Europe, and it applies to every airline that flies to, through, or from Europe, which would include U.S. carriers, that if your flight is delayed or canceled, just like your policy, Richard, they got to write you a check on the spot. So all of that kicks in. What's the biggest surprise for people right now who are contemplating buying this kind of insurance that they're not expecting? Well, that's a, that's a, a big question. You know, it really goes to the traveler. What they're not expecting, I think, uh, it's still the fact that, that 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 these trips. We all know travel is just off the charts expensive, and I, I think people are making these huge investments. So I think it comes down to, to trip cancellation and really protecting somebody's investment, just so they can go again. I mean, I always say, you know, why cancel it? You know, get your money back and rebook it. You know, you know, travel is just a uh, uh, it's amazing and people want to do it. And if you can't go for a certain reason, uh, I, I, I think uh, uh, we give you the opportunity to, to rebook it. Exactly. Now let's go one step beyond that, of course, which is a big issue for us. Medical evacuation and repatriation insurance. You offer that kind of coverage as well. Yeah, that is in our policy. So, you know, if, if you have to get home because you're, you're ill um, or, or even, you know, Germany has great hospitals. If you're sick in Germany and you're a veteran, it's time to come home. You know, we're going to get you home. We're going to get you back to the United States. There's a lot of documents for that, right? So we're going to help you get through that. We're going to get you back to the United States. If you need a medical escort, we're going to get you a medical escort. Um, so many times when someone's ill and we're traveling back to the United States, we do the work to get you back to the United States and Allianz also will send a nurse to travel with you back, you know, and uh, let's say you're, you're on an oxygen tank or you're on some med- medication, you're stable and able to travel back home. We're going to get you there. Um, of course, if there's not the appropriate care at your destination and you have an illness, then our plans also cover uh, the medical evac if necessary to get you back to the United States for proper care. And that's back to a medical facility, a doctor, hopefully of your choice. Yeah, it, yes. I mean, we're going to send, most people want to come back right where they live. And that, that's our goal. I got you. Now, that's different, of course, than trip cancellation, interruption insurance. It's a much more expensive premium. But I can tell you from the experiences that so many of our listeners have had, and the fact that I've carried a, that coverage for 25 years, thankfully I've never had to use it, you definitely want it because if you don't have it, your costs become exponential you're going to have to write uh, an example of a fifty thousand dollar check and, yes. and in our policies this is covered and you don't have to write the check we're we're talking to the hospital we're making sure that the bill is covered and then we're making sure that you get back to to your destination richard aquino yeah. from allianz the largest travel insurance company in the world richard always a pleasure to talk to you And when we come back, you know, I've been talking about the Biltmore being legendary. We're digging deep into the history of this iconic hotel when Ion Travel returns to Phoenix, Arizona and the Biltmore right after this. Richard, thanks again. 
You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel for this uh, last weekend of February 2024. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we happen to be. And I hope you're having a great time where you happen to be. Get out those maps. 33 degrees, 26 minutes north, 112 degrees, 4 minutes west. We are in Phoenix, Arizona. In particular, the legendary, iconic Arizona Biltmore, an amazing resort and hotel that goes back to 1929. And of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. You email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. My next guest knows a little bit about Phoenix. In fact, he has a great title. He's the official historian of Phoenix, working out of the mayor's office. Stephen Schumacher, welcome. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. I mean, born and raised here, and it went away, then you came back? I did. I grew up on the west side, went to the major university here, Arizona State, went to California for a bunch of years for employment, and decided it was time to come back. And when you came back, that's probably when you finally decided you were going to learn about the history. Well, I was doing some history research while still in, while in California, but when I came back, it was more, okay, I have to put actions to the words I've been speaking from California for years. And what was the most surprising thing that you learned in, in checking out? the history of oh that's of, of a great phoenix. question yeah you know, well the the most surprising thing is just how little phoenix specifically and arizona more generally really have paid a lot of attention to our pioneer history there's a big gap there there was a time where they were celebrated for whole weekends newspaper issues were devoted to the pioneers and then there's a big gap after about 1935 and so i felt like they need to get their due and that's what i decided to take on you know, we, we hear about the wild, wild west. We hear about the move west, you know, manifest destiny, and all of those things. But Arizona played a huge part. Well, it did. Uh, Arizona, for many years, was just a desert, and people thought of it just as a desert and a place between El Paso and Los Angeles. But around the turn of the century, in 1912 specifically, when Arizona became a state, more investors came to town from Chicago and the Northeast and the larger metropolitan areas because they saw the potential of the land from an agricultural standpoint. You know, my my grandfather came to Los Angeles. My mother became a Los Angeles native. She was born there. And she kept all of the, the telegrams he used to send her. And the telegrams always were saying, I'll be on the Sunset Limited, stopping first in Arizona, and then coming to L.A. Because that's how people travel. They took They took the train. That's right. That's right. I like to characterize the trains of those days. The Sunset Limited is a great example. And Union Station was where it departed and where it arrived. And all the passenger trains and freight trains went through Union Station. And I like to call Union Station, which is still standing today, it was the Sky Harbor of its time, which is the major airport here in Phoenix. You know, I remember when I first came to Phoenix in 1971, when I first stayed at this hotel, by the way, when I landed at Sky Harbor, the airport looked like a train station. And by the way, if you go to Albuquerque, the airport there looked like a train station. If you went to Santa Fe, New Mexico, the airport there looked like a train station. doesn't look like a train station now. <laughs> but then, absolutely. 
Yeah, Phoenix, really, when you arrived in 1971, really only had a couple small terminals, and I think maybe only three, four, five airlines flew in there. But, of course, Phoenix has always been associated with with growth, and Sky Harbor is no different. It's always reflected the growth of Phoenix, so you're right. It does not look like a train station whatsoever. And the train station is still there. train station is still there. And the Sunset Limited still comes by. Well, no. Unfortunately, all passenger trains ceased almost 30 years ago. But the Sunset Limited still runs. It just doesn't come through here. It doesn't come through here. That's exactly right. You have to go either south or all the way up to Flagstaff to catch a cross-country train. You couldn't pay me to go to Flagstaff. You want to know why? Because <laughs> every time I've driven across the country, I've done it three times, three different times of the year. It doesn't matter. My car broke down in Flagstaff. Oh, my God. Or I got stuck in a snowstorm. People forget it snows in Flagstaff. Yes. And well, big time. When I enlisted in the, in the Army and I was leaving for basic training, it was like July 3rd, and they had a snowstorm in Flagstaff. So I understand. Right. Not too many snowstorms in Phoenix, though. No. No, not that I know of. A few little little things now and then, but nothing to speak of. All right, of. so you did some uh, Herculean work on the, on the original explorers in the wild, wild west, right? Yes. But what's the other surprise for people when they come to Phoenix now in terms of the history? Uh, I think just how much manufacturing has taken over uh, in terms of the economy of Phoenix. I mean, for years and decades, it was always a farming community and... Uh, People these days from most parts of the country tend to want to know how far it is from the Grand Canyon, where can I play golf, and I don't want to get bitten by a rattlesnake. That's what most people think of. And they don't realize that we have a thriving arts and culture community, the Phoenix Little Theater, the Herberger Theater. We have a lot of those destinations. This is not just a golf destination. There's a lot of other very elite uh, types of entertainment. Well, my guess is the people who moved here brought their culture with them. Well, they did. That was a big part of it. Uh, the pioneers came, a lot of them from Chicago, a lot from the Northeast. And, of course, their, their wives and they themselves wanted some sort of culture. So, believe it or not, there was actually an opera house built in Phoenix when it was only nine years old. In about 1890, Phoenix had an opera house, along with the Gila Monsters and the Rattlesnakes. <laughs> and what happened to the opera house? Well, it grew, and it, it, it outgrew uh, the first one. They built a bigger one, and then later on it became uh, the little theater and different theaters around town. But Phoenix has always been associated with growth, as I said. So the opera scene and theater and fine arts and so forth has grown right along with it. What's been the challenge? Challenge for Phoenix? Yeah. Uh, Well, it's always been water. You know, all water since day one. That that's what brought the pioneers here in the first place. They saw the opportunity to grow crops with water from the river, sell them, and make some money. And then Phoenix has always been on the verge or been deep in a drought. So water has always been a major challenge. And yet, you know, and I talked to the mayor about this earlier, but and yet. You know, you keep expanding. That's right. That's right. But we're still right on the verge. As long as the watershed up north provides enough snow to feed the Roosevelt Dam and we keep getting water from the Colorado River, 
we're okay. But there's always that chance that we might encounter one of those droughts that's going to I really tell this to, to my friends in Nevada. I'll tell it to you in Arizona. <clears throat> it's one word. It's called desalination. Good you point. need to write, you have to run some pipes to the Pacific Ocean and do it now. Because the next world war is not going to be fought over oil or religion or politics. It's going to be fought over, over water. That's a really good point, Peter. And, and we are all very, very conscious of it here. But that... I think we have a good handle on it as of today, but that doesn't, that's not to say no, that today's not now, the answer. Right. We've got to plan ahead. Right, exactly. It's down the road. What do we do, 5, 10, 50 years? I mean, look, look at Lake Powell, mm. right, in, in Arizona. Look at Lake Mead in, in Nevada. That's right. The water level is dropping precipitously. That's right. So we've got to worry about that. Yes. But the one thing that's good, because you help us through it, is the history. Yes, thank you. And thank you for celebrating the pioneers. Oh, my pleasure. You're a pioneer historian. How my about that? Pleasure. Stephen Schumacher from the mayor's office, the official historian of the city of Phoenix, Arizona. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you, you for having it. me, Peter. And when we come back, the celebrated writer, Paul Theroux, will join us. And his new book, Fascinating Look at a Time in History, again, that people have forgotten. Back right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with Ion Travel for this last weekend in February 2024. Of course, if you're just joining us, you know the drill. You can always reach out to me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Of course, I always encourage you at this time to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard work all around the world, but opportunities for you to get up close and personal and help the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities and phoenix certainly is no exception check out the saint mary's food bank right here in phoenix they've been doing amazing work in food insecurity for more than 50 years in the greater Phoenix area. And this number is staggering, which I'm about to tell you. They're serving over 300,000 meals a day, six days a week here in Phoenix. And that'll give you an idea of how much work there is and how much work there is to be done and how you can also help out anytime you're in Phoenix and volunteer. And of course, I always say this, the people that you help the most, who better than to give you the best tour ever of Phoenix than the locals you just helped? If you want more information, it's easy. Go right to their website, firstfoodbank.org, or go right to our website. PeterGreenberg.com for the comprehensive list on a global scale. My next guest, I will unabashedly say, is a hero of mine. I've been reading him for many, many years, as many of you have. And, you know, it's one thing to call somebody a travel writer. Uh, most of them aren't. It's one thing to call somebody a travel journalist. Most of them aren't. My next guest is a quintessential writer who travels. And a great American novelist, and yes, a travel writer as well, Paul Theroux. Welcome. Oh, hello, Peter. Aloha from Hawaii. Yes, he also lives the best life ever uh, in, in Hawaii, but that's another story altogether. But you may remember Paul as the author of The Old Patagonian Express, The Great Railway Bazaar, Riding the Iron Rooster, another book that was made into a movie, The Mosquito Coast. And he's now the author of his latest book called Burma Sahib, which has such great historical significance because it tells stories that were otherwise never told about someone, a name I think you remember, George Orwell, and whatever happened before, during, and after. I just The, the question I just have to ask, Paul, is how did you come across this story? And then 
How did you do the research? Well, the research started very early. It started in 1970 with my first visit to Burma. I was living in Singapore. I was teaching at the University of Singapore, and I went to Burma. And at that time, Burma was still very seedy and still looked like a, a relic of the colonial empire. And I knew that George Orwell had lived there as a young man. One of the shortest chapters in any biography of George Orwell is the chapter in which he's a policeman in Burma, age 19, after he went to Eton College. He didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge. He joined the Indian, um, well, the, the British Raj in India. Burma was part of the uh, British Empire then. And this short chapter describes usually, um, in a very sketchy way, Orwell the policeman. His name wasn't Orwell then. It was Eric Blair. He changed his name to Orwell in 1934 with his first book. So the research was basically reading Orwell himself, uh, allusions about Burma, going to Burma, uh, reading memoirs by old colonials in Burma, people who knew him. Uh, one old classmate visited him in 1925 but think of it, George Orwell, the anti-colonial essayist, author of 1984, author of many sort of anti-colonial pamphlets, essays, started his working life as a policeman. It's amazing. And it was, there's a line in one of his books, uh, there's a short period in everyone's life when his, uh, uh, when his character is fixed forever. That's a line from Burmese days. And I think that Orwell in Burma, when he was Eric Blair, the policeman, was his character was formed then as a, as a rebel, uh, a pamphleteer, and anti-colonial. But he had been at the sharp end as a policeman in the empire. You know, I, I go back to, to London all the time. I love going into the old antique and used bookstores, or, the, or they call them the rare bookstores, and when you get to the travel section, I, I, I always am amused by the books that were written at that time by, the, you call them the colonialists, and they always yeah. start out with a title like, My Walk Across India, My Journey Across France, My, you know, it's always, they're, they're walking through, you know, something that has to do, and France is probably not a good example, but my walk across India would be a good example. It was always about their walk and their journey across some part of the British Empire. That's true, you know. And, and it, what you say is very much to the point, because a lot of the research I did was by people. So Orwell was there from uh, 1922 to 1927. And just before he went there, um, say, around the turn of the century, around 1900, 1906, 1907, 19, before the First World War, lots of British men and women visited Burma and talked about the temples, uh, the wildlife, the people. Uh, it was a pretty prosperous place. It was the source of the, of, uh, the teak wood. that was, It was very high-quality teak that was made into furniture in, in India, so it was shipped out. Uh, they had cotton, they had rice, they had gold. They have also rubies, gems. So a lot of them, so what you said, those were the books that I read. So memoirs, 
So Orwell, for one point, was on the Irrawaddy River, way down in the Delta. So who knows about that? No one except these intrepid people that you mentioned. So when in doing research for it, just to find out what was the weather like when he was there, say in March 1922, 1923, there's someone there to tell you about the bird life, the water, the weather, the food, the people, the crime. Um, and there was a lot of crime. Um, there, there was something called the crime season when it was very, very hot. Then there's the crime season, the, the <laughs> British colonial call it the crime season. So he was there, but he was, he was a policeman, as I said. So his training, he was a probationary policeman. So he went to Mandalay. First he went to Rangoon, then Mandalay. And he was in Mandalay for almost two years, just training to be a policeman. Um, how to drill troops, how to ride a horse, all that kind of thing. And um, so I, I had a lot of information. I also could relate it to my own life, uh, not only by travel in Burma. I, I've been there four times. I'm sure you've been there more, more times than that. But when I was when I was 22, I was a teacher in Central Africa in a country called Nyasaland. Now, Nyasaland, after I'd been there seven months, became Malawi. But for the seven months I was there, it was a British territory with the Union Jack flying and uh, sporting clubs and social clubs to which Africans were not allowed to join. So it was, and it was like that with Orwell. When, 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 when he was in Burma, there were clubs. A lot of his life there, their social life was club life. And the Burmese and the local Chinese were not allowed to join the club. It was just sort of British only. Scottish, English, Irish, whenever, or not Irish, but uh, Welsh. But they're, so they're joining the club. So I could relate to my little experience living in a British territory in 1963 was very helpful to writing the book. But the book is, it's a novel. It's a novel based on Orwell's or Eric Blair's life. It's, it's amazing. And by the way, I should also, I want to hasten to add that about eight years ago, you were awarded a Royal Medal from the Royal Geographical Society for the encouragement of geographical discovery through travel writing. And by the way, you're in good company. The other recipients, Sir Edmund Hillary, Admiral Richard Byrd and Dr. Thor Heyerdahl. I mean, how else could I say it? But when I said it before, you're my hero. I mean, because... Well, you know, these. Th thank you, Peter. Those guys are my heroes. I mean, uh, Richard Byrd was in Antarctica. Um, Heyerdahl was the, the, the great navigator. So, I mean, it, it, it was a great honor. And uh, so it's a, it's a gold medal, and I got it. If I ever run out of money, I'll sell it. That's, that's, a, that's a joke. But actually, um, so the, the Royal Geographical Society was the, the preeminent institution for all explorers, Sir Richard Burton and Speak and um, you, know, you, you name it. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, Livingston, Stanley, and whatever. Um, but anyway, uh, I had never written a historical novel before, so it was a lot of fun writing. I mean, it took me two years. I spent a lot of time in the library, so the time <laughs> in Burma had been helpful. <laughs> but fortunately, in Hawaii, we we have a, a great university library here, and that was very helpful, too. The name, of, I the, say the, the name of the book, I just want to run it in here before I run out of time. Again, it's Burma Sahib, the author, of course, the legendary Paul Theroux. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Peter. Not legendary yet, but maybe sometime. Well, in my mind, <laughs> I guarantee it. <laughs> thanks, Paul. Thank you, Peter. And thanks for the work you do, and particularly in Phoenix, your mention of the charity there, the, uh, handing out the food. That was very impressive. Oh, listen, we try to do that every week. I appreciate that, Paul. And we'll be back with Good. more of Ion Travel from Phoenix and the Biltmore right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. Need more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Arizona Biltmore here in Phoenix. Of course, you can always reach out to me. That's an easy one. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. Let's go to the phones in Chicago. I got Chris on the phone. Hey, Chris. Hey, Peter. Uh, 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 I, I really enjoy your show. And uh, I'm traveling to Greece, uh, Greek Island tour. It's September. Uh, Norwegian Cruise Line. Uh, it's the uh, Nor- Norwegian Getaway. Yep, I've been uh, on ship. Yep. Uh, we're going to go to Athens, Istanbul, Crete, San Rini. Uh, it. I I booked this in last October, and uh, the second air fare was free, which I understand is a great deal right now. Uh, it's a nine-day nine day cruise. Yeah. So uh, any uh, tips? Uh, give yeah. Me? Well, first of all, Athens is always great because you go, you know, you go outside of Athens and it's just amazing. Uh, my suggestion is to get to Athens before at least three or four days before the ship sails and then, you know, use the ferry system out of Piraeus and go visit some of the islands like Milos. I mean, it's, it's, it, and that's just one. But then you also mentioned you're going to Istanbul, and chances are you'll be, you'll be docking at the new ferry terminal right there on the Bosphorus and some amazing hotels there and restaurants that you will, you will love, including walking distance from the ferry terminal is the oldest bakery in Istanbul where you're going to go buy your simit bread hot right off the oven. You're going to love that. The only caution I'm going to give you, Chris, is you mentioned you're also going to Santorini. That's where Greece gets over tourism. Uh, I've done three cruises to, to Greece in the last three years, and I made a point of not getting off the ship when we got to Santorini. Now, the good news is for you, at least, relatively speaking, you're going in September, so it will be less crowded. But if you're going in June, July, or August, I would have told you not to get off the ship. But you're doing fine, and you're going to have a great time. Well, uh, Peter, uh, I listen to you uh, every week, and... Uh uh, I really enjoy uh, your show. You got it, Kristen. Thanks again for your call. Thank you. You got it. And now we'll go to the emails. I've got one here from Larry, and this is an interesting one. He says he loves the show, but he di- he disagrees with me on my continual complaints about not being able to use airline miles for travel. And this is what Larry says. My wife and I have been married 43 years, and we have traveled in each of those years usually flying three to four times in each of those years, mostly on American, Hawaiian, and Southwest. We have not paid for seats on American for, I guess, the last 25 years. Flying each spring round trip to Hawaii 
and flying round trip to Europe two of the three years each fall for the last 10 years. On each of those trips, we flew American using Advantage Miles for free flights. Now, you know what? Here's the question you got to answer for me, Larry. Did you book these flights 330 days out? I bet you did. You want, you, because you were smart enough and lucky enough to have the flexibility to be able to do that. But an overwhelming number of American travelers don't have your flexibility. And by the way, I, I take my hat off that you've been able to do that for 25 years. That is an amazing achievement. But you are in a distinct, repeat, distinct minority. Because do you know how many unredeemed miles there are out there right now that people have earned but have been unable to redeem? Are you ready, Larry? 34 trillion. So you got lucky. And by the way, congratulations. Most people don't have that luck. And therein lies the problem. All right, so continue to do what you're doing. I love that you're able to do it. And you say, it can be done. You're right, it can be done. Listen, very few people have more mileage than I do, and I can't do it because of my schedule. You know, all of a sudden, if I have a week free next week and I want to go somewhere, I can't find a seat on the plane. 328 days out, maybe. And you know what? For everybody listening, follow in Larry's footsteps with his wife, Betty. And you know what you do? Think at least 315 to 20 days out. Pick a destination that nobody wants to go to, but you go to it. And when you come back, you'll have bragging rights, and then you can call me up on the phone and tell me you were able to redeem your miles just like Larry and Betty did. And congratulations again, Larry, on doing that. But remember when I said you're in the distinct minority? I'm not kidding. I don't know anybody other than you who's been able to fly quote-unquote free for the last 25 years. By the way, one more thing Larry said to me in his email is that they pay their credit card balance in full every month. It's a win-win-win. I want to grow up to be Larry. That's who I want to be when I grow up because you're doing it all right. You are doing it all right. Unfortunately, most people don't even have a chance to do it right. They get hosed the minute they try to redeem their miles. And that's something you have to remember. So again, Larry, congratulations. Continue doing what you're doing. And... Let me know the one other thing you haven't answered. What mileage level did you have to spend to get those flights? I bet it wasn't 25,000 miles. I bet it was more like 80,000 or 90,000 or 125,000. Therein lies the real question about the real value proposition of the mileage programs to begin with. I keep coming back to say congratulations, Larry, but I always had to add that important perspective. Okay. And when we come back, speaking of perspective, we're going to take a trip through history right here at the Arizona Biltmore. This is a timeless Allure Hotel and so many great stories to tell. So stick with us. We'll be back with more from Arizona and the Arizona Biltmore right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. 
Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the legendary historic Arizona Biltmore right here in Phoenix. You can always reach me, you know the drill, just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. I said this earlier in the show, I'll say it again, I've been coming here, I hate to say it, 1971 <laughs> when I was working for Newsweek. It was our home away from home in Phoenix. It's where we, we hung out. And what a lucky guy I was to be able to do that. And here we are so many years later and I'm hanging out again in a hotel from a design point of view that really hasn't changed. From a functionality point of view, it hasn't changed. From an ambiance view, it hasn't really changed. And that's really probably the allure and the beauty of it all because it really hasn't changed. Obviously, they've done renovations and obviously they've done some new lighting work and new sink work and new bathrooms. But the actual design of the hotel, nothing's taller than three stories. It's just spread out beautifully, and uh, it really is a, a, a continuing allure of the Frank Lloyd Wright design. But it goes more than just the design. That's why I have my next guest on the air. He's the actual historian here at the Arizona Biltmore. John Jordan, how are you, sir? Glad to be here. Thank you. So we go back to 1929, the height of the Depression, and they build this hotel. That's correct. Well, technically, it was right before the Depression because they did build it in 1928 and then opened it in February 23rd, 1929. Right before the crash in October. Right before the crash. So it was fortuitous on some level that they did it right before, but actually it did affect it later on. But this hotel really started the tourism industry. Absolutely. In Arizona. Yes, that's true. It was actually eight miles north of Phoenix proper. There were only 40,000 people in Phoenix, if you can imagine that's probably 40,000 people in like a square mile right now. Um, But it's hard for people to imagine how far outside of the city boundary it was. And the MacArthur brothers who had the idea, who were from Chicago, did have a pretty good idea of how they were going to build this resort. And you know, when you think about it, when they built this hotel at that time, you were way out of town. Yes. Dirt roads, eight miles. Uh, They had to have a searchlight on top of the building to let people know where they were driving. That's how dark it was no paved roads you had to get a star fix at night (laughs) yes exactly (laughs) i love it okay so you've gone from forty thousand people to how many now in phoenix uh well in just in phoenix is about six seven million wow but but in the in the metropolitan there's much more than that but this hotel is sort of a living breathing museum absolutely and i say that a lot because a lot of hotels are very functional Yes, they are beautiful, but ours is a work of art, not only because of the Frank Lloyd Wright connection, but also because of our architect, Albert Chase MacArthur, had the vision to base it off of Frank Lloyd Wright's textile block styles that he was doing in Los Angeles before. So it really is very unique because there are no other hotels that utilize the textile block system. And what else makes it special? What else makes it special is that, like I said, the, the, the colors, the use of concrete. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright was way ahead of his time in use of concrete. Nowadays, concrete is a very modern... Uh, substance where people are building buildings. He was building concrete back in the 20s and people were laughing at him. They said it looked like a tomb. It looked very industrial. But now these homes that he built in Los Angeles are multi-million dollar homes because of that reason. And of course, once the hotel opened, it became sort of a hub for the entertainment industry. Absolutely. In fact, it was designed that way. That's why they, the MacArthur brothers intentionally put things like the speakeasy, which is a huge draw here, the mystery room, we like to call it. Um, they knew that people were going to have to drink because we were open during Prohibition. From 20 to 33, the United States was under Prohibition. Right. We opened at 29, so they knew they had to do that. You know, they were from Chicago with Al Capone. So they knew they were going to have a, have a cool speakeasy, which we have at the hotel. And you still have it? Absolutely. <laughs> do I'll, I have show, I'll a, show you after do, the show. Do I have a secret code I have to use? <laughs> no, you have the connection right here, my friend. I know a guy who knows a guy. Uh, that's right. That's right. So basically, this is a dry state, 
as all of America was, except people were drinking at the Biltmore. Oh, of course. And, and, you know, they had to get around things because that room had a secret passage and they had to order what they call a setup from the front bar. And then when you got up there, yeah, you got your ice, you got your bar. I mean, you got your barware. And then they would open up this cabinet and there would be the booze. So that's how they got around selling it. Ah, so nobody actually paid for it. Correct. But they did pay for it. They did pay for it, yes. Of course, at the Biltmore, you always pay. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the motto of the hotel yeah, business yeah, now? Yeah, pretty much. Okay, pretty much. fine. Just double checking. Yes, yes. So it goes back to the days of Prohibition, but then you've been able to evolve since then. Absolutely. In fact, well, from Prohibition, Prohibition ended in 1933, and we became a hub for all of the Hollywood people like the Cary Grants and the Clark Gables and the Marilyn Monroe's, the Frank Sinatra's, all those guys, and then all the presidents that have stayed here all the way up through Obama. I'm sure you know that. Yep. Um, and then in 1973, we were sold from the original family to a new family, and they started doing additions, and that continues on today. We've done some great additions. Like you said, the original hotel and the vibe is exactly the same as it was, and I show historical photos that show how similar it was. And there's not a lot of places that have been around for 95 years that look as the same as it did 95 years ago as the Arizona Biltmore. And you can take a tour. Absolutely. You can take tours. Um, we have a special 95th anniversary tour that we're giving. And you may have heard, but we have a brand new book out. This is a big <laughs> news because we didn't have a book for a long time. We have a brand new book out for the Arizona Biltmore that people will be able to get. John Jordan, the Arizona Biltmore historian. Thanks for joining us, man. Thank you, Peter. And I'll see you at the speakeasy. Yes, let's do it. Back Rive more and your emails right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg here, back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Sonoran Desert, otherwise known as the Arizona Biltmore, the legendary hotel celebrating its 95th birthday right out here in Phoenix. Of course, you know the drill. You can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Let's go right to some of those emails right now. Here's one from Paul who writes, we're going to go flying to Phoenix. So how appropriate. Arriving at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday, is it more beneficial to take a shuttle to the rental car center or do an airport pickup? The map seems to show a similar distance to each location. Price for doing the shuttle is much cheaper, please advise. Well, Paul, I have no idea what you're talking about a shuttle because Phoenix has the SkyTrain. It goes right from the terminal all the way to the rental car center. It operates 24-7. It's free. So uh, there you go. And yes, it is open at 10 o'clock at night, obviously. So that's the way I would do it, right? I mean, easier to do. No no airport pickup needed. Just go to the shuttle. I mean, the shuttle. Go to the SkyTrain and go right to your rental car counter. All right, here's one from Kate who writes, I'm visiting Amsterdam on business in March, and I'm very much a novice traveler. Any guidance you can provide? I'm most concerned about the ability to use my cell phone should I need to make a call. Well, of course you're going to make a call. As well as texting, use of Microsoft Teams, Google, email, etc. Okay, so let's talk about this. It's one of the great sticker shocks. People come back from their trip, and then they get their cell phone bill, and they get killed not just for for calls and overseas calls, they get killed for data. Now, you didn't tell me the service you were on, 
But no matter whether it's AT&T or Verizon or uh, T-Mobile, they all have great plans that don't necessarily require you to go swap out your SIM card when you land in Amsterdam. So you can get a daily pass from AT&T, a daily pass, or even a monthly pass from Verizon. T-Mobile's got a great deal. They're offering more than 130 countries at, a, at one low rate with the, you know, and you could get different plans with for unlimited data or X number of, you know, megabytes. Bottom line is, it's all available. Just check with your service provider before you leave home so that you don't get that sticker shock because I can tell you those roaming charges if you don't do that can be a couple of hundred and sometimes even more than a thousand dollars depending on how often you use the phone and I like that you say should I need to make a call we're all addicted to our phones of course you're going to make a call but you want to have the option that's the true definition of luxury travel you want to have the option of being able to call anybody at any time without worrying about how much you have to go to your wallet to complete that call now I get this question all the time When's the best time to book a ticket? Now, in the old days, it used to be Tuesday night at midnight or 1 a.m. or 12 minutes or 12 or 1 a.m. Wednesday morning. And that's when a lot of discount fares would come flooding back into the airline's computer system. Those days are gone, right? So now there's a new study out checking out exactly when is the prime sweet spot for, for booking before departing to get the best fare. And it tends to be somewhere within a 54-day period. And the prime booking window extends all the way up to about three weeks from your travel date, but the deal is you want to find the lowest rate. It's about 2.5 months out in that window. I say 54 days, but 2.5 months seems to be it. And they, they, now, they did the analysis of 917 million airfares across the U.S. to figure out that if you didn't wait, or if, I take that back, if you did wait until less than a week out, you would be paying 59% more for your ticket. On the other hand, if you book too early, guess what? You pay just as much, not good. So you look for that sweet spot. Let's, let's, let's kind of split the difference. Anywhere from 54 days to two and a half months out, with the exceptions being, of course, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving, um, you know, Christmas, um, you know, July 4th, Memorial Day, Labor Day. Other than that, oh yeah, President's Day weekend. That's it. Other than that, you can look ahead and, and get a pretty good job. Because remember, the airlines use sophisticated algorithms to project demand year over year, month over month, week over week, and that's how they set prices. But they're looking at the same sweet spot that you are. And if the loads don't materialize between 54 days out and two and a half months out, prices come down. And that's exactly when you strike, right? It's exactly when you do it. Now, what about the day of the week that you choose to travel? That makes a difference, too. What day do you think it is? This is an easy one. It's Wednesday, right? Midweek flights will almost always be cheaper. That's a no-brainer. But listen to this. And this is where it gets a little confusing. Do uh, you know how often airlines adjust their airfares? How about, do you know how often the airfares are adjusted every day? You ready? 250,000 times a day. That's all airlines right? Uh, and on certain flights, the price can change 49 times on average, right? And you can have savings or debits, swings of about $100 in, uh, on average. Sometimes it's even worse. So now you know the drill. Try to fly on a Wednesday. Try to book between 54 days and two and a half months out with the exceptions of holiday periods. So for example, if you want to book for next Christmas, right? You're certainly within 330 days now. If you want to book for Christmas, book it now. Those fares are not going to go down. 
no matter what. Same thing for Thanksgiving, same thing for July 4th, Memorial Day, etc. And now you know, all right? And then uh, you can also get some fare trackers. We have a lot of apps that do that, that will let you know if the fares drop after you purchase your ticket. And if they drop significantly, remember, we live in a world where you don't get draconian ticket change fees. You can go refund that ticket and immediately rebook and save some money as well. You just got to stay on top of it. All right? That's the deal. You got to beat the airlines at their own game, playing by their rules. When we come back, more from the Arizona Biltmore here in Phoenix, Arizona. So stick around, everybody. Back with more as Ion Travel continues right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg, and welcome back to Ion Travel for this last weekend of February 2024. If you're just joining us, I hope you're having a great time wherever you happen to be, and we are actually having a wonderful time where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 33 degrees, 26 minutes north, 112 degrees, 4 minutes west. We are in the middle of the Sonoran Desert in Phoenix, Arizona, at the legendary Biltmore Hotel and Resort, and uh, it's now called the Waldorf Astoria, by the way. But what's really cool about this place is it's 95 years ago this weekend it opened up. Back in 1929, and it's been going strong ever since. We've been talking a lot throughout the show about the history of this hotel and all the cool people who stayed here, and, uh, you know, and they even let me in, so I don't know how that happened. Remember the old Groucho Marx line? I would never join a club that would have me as a member. So somebody must have messed, must have messed up because they let me check in. But seriously, what a great architectural icon this, these buildings are. And it's not just one building. It, it stretches way out there, but you're not, it doesn't tower, which is even better. Of course, you can always reach me. Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, and we will solve it right on the air. I want to ask everybody a question because it's been burning a hole in my pocket for reasons that you'll understand the pun. Has tipping gotten out of control? I think it has. Uh, When was the last time you looked at a credit card receipt at a restaurant? Have you seen double and triple dipping? Have you seen mandatory tips? Have you seen mandatory inclusions of health and and welfare charges and other surcharges. And then we're not even going to get to room service, which is the biggest ripoff. But the bottom line is we understand why people need to make a decent wage, and we support that. But the whole concept of tipping has gotten out of control. Does anybody understand the derivation of the word tip? It means to ensure promptness. That's right. So mandatory tips sort of defeat the whole concept, doesn't it? Uh, And it gets even worse because it's not just the tip, it's the service fees, the delivery charges, uh, the surcharges, and then we're just always going to our wallet. Uh, I remember in Chicago, we ordered a pizza from the W Hotel, room service, right? By the time the pizza was delivered, and it was not like a big, you know, 19-inch pizza. It was a single-person pizza in a little small box. 
You know what the tab was? $47. It was when you added up not the cost of the pizza, but the room service charge, the surcharge, the delivery charge, uh, and then a mandatory tip, and then they left a, a line blank for gratuity. We're at $47. Had I ordered the, the pizza from Domino's, it would have been 15 bucks and maybe a $5 tip, and it would have gotten there faster. So I'd love to hear from you. Email me, peter at petergreenberg.com. Tell me your stories about tipping. Tell me about your experiences about tipping. What's worked for you? Do you really enjoy tipping? By the way, if I get good service, I love tipping. I want them to know I really appreciated what they did. And remember, in the, in the service industry, it's not the delivery of the service that makes the difference. It's how people recover when something goes wrong. Those are the real heroes. Those are the people you want to tip even more. But when you build it in and you make it mandatory, you just destroy the spirit of it. You also destroy the intent. So let me know some of your crazier stories. I'll give you one. I was checking into a hotel in Arizona not too long ago, not this one, and I only had a carry-on bag, and um, I noticed there was a bellman there, but I didn't need him. I gave the front desk clerk my credit card. I registered. They gave me my key. I went to my room. The next morning, I'm checking out, and the bill is under my door. This happens, right? You expect it. And I looked at the bill. I was charged for the room. Expected that. I was charged for the, for the tax. I expected that. But there was another charge on the bill. $10. And what did the item say? Mandatory tip to Bellman. Are you kidding me? That Bellman was still on duty when I got that, when I got that bill because I checked in late the night before. So I got him on the phone. His name was Manny. I said, Manny, what is this? He goes, yeah, I know. I said, do you even get the money? He said, no. Well, that to me is the declaration of war. I mean, it's just completely insincere and insidious. But that's where we are these days. The other thing is just a whole nickel and dime approach to pricing. I was at a restaurant the other night, a fine dining establishment, which I knew to be fine dining when I made the reservation, so there was not going to be any shock or surprise or sticker shock. I knew that the, the menu items were going to be a little higher than I would normally want to pay, but I was there for that privilege of having that ambiance and that service and the quality of food. No problem, right? In the upper left-hand corner of the menu was a little note that said, if you'd like bread at the table, it's a $2.53 surcharge. Are you kidding me? Look, again, I know costs are going up. We're all, we're all victims of inflation. But if that's the situation and you're in a fine dining restaurant, why not just bury the bread in, in the veal <laughs> or bread, bury it in the steak? Don't devalue my experience by making me go to my wallet for something I was expecting to have anyway, right? We, we've gotten to this mini bar mentality. Uh, and then there's the tipping, Look, again, I want truth, I want transparency, I want full disclosure, and oh, by the way, I'd like some great service as well, and that's where we are. You know, where are we? We're getting priced out of the market on something that should be our choice, our decision, and in done in a very honest and open 
and friendly way. All right, let me know what you think about tipping these days, whether it's at the hotel, whether it's a cab driver, a bellman, whether it's, a, you know, another service worker. It doesn't matter. Tell me what you think of the concept, how it's being applied today, how it's affecting you, and what message do you want to send to maybe get it back on track? All right, moving along, I have some good news. It's the power of the U.S. dollar against four different countries in their currency exchange. You want to have buyer's market? You want to be the king? You want to go to Tokyo, another country that begins with T, Turkey, Japan, we just mentioned Tokyo, South Africa, and Argentina. This is where the dollar reigns supreme. It's unbelievable, right? You want to do your Christmas shopping in, in, in now? Go to Argentina, right? Now, remember, they can adjust airfares. They can adjust hotel rates. But no country can adjust the basic cost of goods and services that the locals pay, whether it's for a tube of toothpaste, a taxi ride, a night out in the town, clothing, whatever. And that's where the savings are. In Japan, the yen is very weak. South Africa, the rand is very weak. Argent and, 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 of course, in Turkey, they've devalued the lira so much. Maybe 12 years ago, it was 1.1 to the dollar. Now it's nearing 30. Whatever you want, it's a bargain. A night out for two with all the wine you can imagine, maybe 40 bucks. Something to think about. All right, when we come back, more from the Biltmore here in Arizona and a little bit of history when we come back, not to mention some music. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you, coming to you from the legendary Biltmore Hotel. It's now Waldorf Astoria right here in Phoenix, Arizona. You can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, and of course, as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with the most imaginative name, I lied, petergreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations really working hard for everybody around the world and doing this hard work that you could also get involved in every time you travel and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities. Phoenix is no exception. Check out the St. Mary's Food Bank. They're right here and have been doing this for over 50 years and this number still astounds me. Every single day they're delivering and serving 300,000 meals six days a week. That'll give you an idea about food insecurity in America and how you can help because you can volunteer. And when you do that, you get to meet the people who really need the help the most and you help them. And, let, and then you get to be selfish because who better to give you the best tour of Phoenix than the people you just helped. If you want more information on how you can volunteer when you come to Phoenix, go to their website, firstfoodbank.org or go right to our, our food bank, <laughs> our food bank, our website, petergreenberg.com for the comprehensive list on a global level. My next guest has an amazing job at an amazing museum that most of you have never heard about. It's it's fascinating. I've actually visited, and he's the curator at the Musical Instrument Museum here in Phoenix. Richard Walter, welcome. Thanks very much. Now, there are art museums. There are museums of the American Indian. There are museums of, of, of the American artists. There are museums of... of you know, but the American... A, a museum of American... Uh, not just American. Musical instruments from the world. 
right? That's right, yeah. So the Musical Instrument Museum is truly a global uh, collection. We've got thousands of instruments from every corner of the world, every nation and territory, and a lot of really incredible performance traditions, innovative people, uh, just from all over through many generations. I mean, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind place. And, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, they've got a trumpet or they've got a guitar or they've got a flute or, or, or you know, or a clarinet. You're going way beyond that. We go way beyond that. And what's really a special experience for people who, who see this museum for the first time, on the one hand, of course, they're going to see trumpets and clarinets and flutes and things that they might f- find familiar and they'll also find all of the different ways people from around the globe have come up with really sophisticated musical instruments, and, many of and, which and are flutes. Case, and, and many of which are primitive. Well, primitive and yet very sophisticated, too. That's one of the, the eye-openers and ear-openers is because you know there are drums and flutes and horns and stringed instruments that go back hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And so on the one hand, they might seem rudimentary or, or primitive, but... Thousands of years ago, they were operating at a really sophisticated level with technologies, materials, design, and we learn over and over that that human beings have found really clever, inventive ways to create music. And by the way, not just create music, but in a way, correct me if you think I'm wrong, to invent sound. Oh, truly, and and manipulate sound and yeah. come up with, with tools, with musical instruments that help them achieve the sounds they have in their imagination. So it's, it's really a, it fuels the, the music that is heard all around the world, and, and it's a, a process of invention, refinement, and, and honing in those sounds that different ears want to hear. One of the revelations I had was when I was a kid, you know, the, you know there's, there's the movie out now called Maestro, you know, the story of Leonard Bernstein. And he used to have what he called the Young Children's Concerts in New York, and my mom would take me. Wow. And when you listen to the New York Philharmonic, when you listen to all the instruments as a whole, it was sort of deceptive because you didn't understand what each interest, instrument actually did. Yeah. And my revelation was on an instrument that might surprise you. It was when we, I went to the concert one day, and, um, and I was sitting there with all the other 12-year-olds, right, and trying to behave. And they did an oboe solo. I had never heard, I heard the oboe as it played in the, in the, in the orchestra, but never as a solo instrument. Right, yeah. And when I heard the sound that it made, I was like, wow, because I'd never heard it before. And then I recognized it in every other song from that moment on. Yeah, that's an amazing thing that happens, and you, you hear that signature voice of a type of instrument, and it can be such an arresting sound, and then it's, it leaves an imprint. And what's exciting for us at the Musical Instrument Museum, we, we see guests coming through there and discovering sounds that they've literally never even imagined in their lives, and they see an instrument, and not only are they seeing the instruments, but they're wearing headsets and watching videos, so there's a, a real multimedia immersive experience, and they're hearing some of those sounds that they're hearing for the first time and thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know right. people could make that make that sound. And sometimes it really sticks with them and they go and seek it out in the world. And, and of course, we love that. Now, your bachelor's degree was in anthropology and archaeology, and that might not seem relatable to what we're talking about, but it's very relatable. Well, it is. It's all about uh, how people make meaning out of their lives. And the archaeology 
prepared me to really appreciate the, the objects themselves, the whole diversity and history of how people create objects. And of course, the, anth- the anthropology has everything to do with uh, respecting how people come up with different solutions to, to create traditions, to create uh, identity, to, to communicate their ideas in a whole variety of ways. And when you, when you go back into history, you realize that musical instruments then, in many cases, had a completely different purpose than they do now. Um, they were instruments of war. You know, you, you, yeah. I mean, if the army was marching, the, the military band was playing a certain instrument as a show of strength. Yeah, uh, so through history, of course, music has been used for all those different functional purposes as, as signals, as communication, as, uh, you know, to be able to get a message across a waterway or across a valley. I mean, there are a lot of really clever ways of using those sounds. Some of them are strictly functional. Some of them obviously are celebratory and uh, entertaining and, and all Some kinds of Some of them are intimidating. Uses. Some of them can be intimidating, of course, yeah. And looking at your collection, which is extensive, what would be for you the most surprising instrument? Oh, we get surprised all the time. Uh, so that that's a hard thing to answer. We are really proud to have things like the the first guitar. I mean, the oldest surviving full-size guitar. Okay, i got to ask the, the, the devil's advocate question. How do you know? Well, no one's found anything earlier. and, and things <laughs> that's, like, a good, that's a good one. <laughs> things like guitars that have a kind of an evolution from previous types of instruments, and we know that they they've kind of uh, belong to a family, and then people who spend a lot of time defining these things and saying, well, this this isn't quite a guitar, but now this is a guitar. It's sort of like the, the biological world, too. There are sure. species, and there it's are things that time. evolve. But my question to you is, when I think of guitar, and I know this is stereotypical, mm-hmm. I think of a wooden acoustic guitar. Yeah, That's not what we're talking about, is it? It is. Yeah, it's, it's from the 16th century, and it's a wooden acoustic guitar, had gut strings at the time, and has a lot of features that you'd recognize as a, a guitar, and then, of course, some others that you'd recognize as a, as a bit older version of it. But yeah, it's, it's a guitar. And, you know, I think about percussion instruments, you know, I mean, you go back to the very, very older days of, of, of drums, Right. And what they used to cover the drums, mm-hmm. right? The sounds that it made, th- those are the intimidating ones, right? Well, they, again, those can, they have been used for uh, intimidating purposes. They've been used for communication. They've been used for status. They've been used to just demonstrate that uh, y- you have a, an important message to send. So, yeah, drums, horns, all kinds of things have been used in such combination and what's exciting, again, at MIM is uh, we have varieties of MIM all those MIM stands things. for the Musical Instrument Museum. Yeah, Musical Instrument Museum, M-I-M, uh, MIM, we call it. And we have those, everything from the really decorative presentation court-style instruments to the, the functional plain ones, but they all have a purpose, and they've all really helped people around the world identify their own sound and their own music. Now, do you take it all the way through to electronic? Oh, of course. Yeah, we have things dating back 6,000 years, a a really little gem of a Chinese uh, ceramic drum. But we also have things that are electronic, digital, contemporary music. It's the full spectrum. Do you have a Moog? We do. Yeah, we've (laughs) got... A Moog synthesizer? We've got several. And, uh, you know, Robert Moog, again, another pioneer. And it's important for us to represent that whole variety because that's how music is made in the world. It's, It's a really thorough collection, not only geographically, but, but through time. Wow. 
So basically, you're going to prehistoric all the way through... Today. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a disco wing? <laughs> you know, we don't have a whole disco wing, but our, our museum is organized into uh, geographic locations, basically, so virtually continent by continent. And in some of those areas, in addition to having individual countries and their special traditions, we get to delve into particular genres and families of instruments more deeply. And so, yeah, we, we actually have clips of disco music and <laughs> funk music and rap. And How many instruments do you think you can estimate that you have? Well, on display, we have uh, more than 3,000, between three and 4,000 wow. on display and another couple thousand in storage on site. Richard Walter, the curator at the museum, I should call it MIM, the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a delight to be here. Wow, I can't wait to see the Moog. <laughs> Back with more right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. And we're back. Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues from the legendary Biltmore Hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. And if you want to reach out to me, you know the drill. You just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And I do want to hear about your issues with tipping. It's a big deal and getting bigger. Let's, let's go right to the emails right now. Here's one from Joanna who says, How can I protect myself? I've got a short layover, a connecting time. The airline is only giving me 45 minutes between flights, but the flight I booked was so much cheaper than the other flights. Well, Joanna, you're typical of a mistake that so many travelers make. You're motivated by the rate and not about the practical timing of it. A 45-minute connect time is ludicrous. And given the fact that every plane is full these days, you're, you're, you're pushing yourself into a trap that you made yourself. So now that you've already made this reservation, how are you going to protect yourself? One of two ways. One is uh, go back and look at the flight schedules. You know what time you're getting in, and you know what time your flight, your connecting flight's supposed to leave. So now look at the schedule for the next connecting flight that's going to get you to your final destination. And book a one-way ticket on that. And remember, we're no longer living in the draconian world of, of, of ticket change fees. So you're not going to lose any money. What you're doing right now is basically protecting yourself with a backup plan. So buy your discounted ticket with that 45-minute crazy connect time. And then assume, for the sake of our discussion, your, flight's going to, your first flight's going to be late. You're going to miss the second flight. Now, with every other flight being full, you're now stuck in that intermediate airport unless you do what I tell you. Buy that one-way fare on the later flight that's going to connect you to your final destination. So, if you do make that 45-minute connection, guess what? You just, you just get a credit on the unused flight you didn't take. If you did miss the flight and you've got to get the next flight, that flight's going to be full, but guess what? You're holding a seat on it and you're actually going to get to where you want to go. If not... You'll be sitting in that rocking chair at that airport all night long. So remember that, okay? Now, here's a flight you don't see every day. You know what's coming up in April, don't you? It's Monday, April 8th. It's the total solar eclipse. It's going to cross the United States. And one airline, Delta, 
is offering a special flight that day. Who knew? It's going to depart from Austin, Texas, and land in Detroit to see the eclipse in its entirety and its totality. It's called Flight 1218. It's going to depart from Austin at about 12.15 in the afternoon Central Time and land at Detroit Metropolitan Airport at about 3.20 p.m. Central Time or 4.20 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's, they just announced it like three days ago. It's already sold out. How about that? I guess they're going to probably put on a second flight because everybody wants to be part of that, right? I love it. It's a sort of flight to nowhere, but somewhere at the same time. So check out Delta Airlines Flight 1218 or call Delta. Don't do this online. It won't be listed online uh, to see if they're going to put on a separate section for, for the overflow of everybody who wants to go see the total solar eclipse Monday, April 8th. Speaking of dates in April, this is one... I mean, it brings back such memories. April 2nd, that's the last day the legendary Tropicana Hotel in Las Vegas is going to be open. That's the day it closes forever. Why? They're going to implode it. They're going to blow it up. They're going to tear it down because it's making way for Major League Baseball in Las Vegas and the future home of what was the Oakland Athletics about to become the Las Vegas Athletics, and uh, a $1.5 billion baseball stadium that they're going to do. And let's go back and talk about the Tropicana. It goes back to the Rat Pack, doesn't it? 67 years old. In fact, if truth be told, a lot of movies were shot there, including two of the ones that I produced. Uh, But I have to tell you, it's it's been a dive for so long. They put no money into it. It's just this sort of a white elephant on the corner, and it's about to go. So for those of you, here's a thought. I'm just going to suggest it. For those of you who want to do your own remake of um, <laughs> Hangover Part 1 or Hangover Part 2, I suppose, I'm not suggesting you do this, but there are a lot, I'm going I'm to guess a lot of people are going to go there and trash the rooms because they can't charge you for damages if they're going to blow the hotel up the next day. So, I mean, can you imagine what's going to be like one week before April 2nd? Party, 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 everything short of donkeys in the elevator. I mean, watch out. But uh, what a way to say goodbye to this old historic hotel, the Tropicana, closing April 2nd after 67 years. And I cannot wait to see the videos and the TikToks that are going to be coming out of that hotel uh, the last week in March and the first two days of April. Uh, And it won't be April Fool's. It'll be April Real. And uh, we'll be watching that space very carefully. And when we come back, we're going to talk to my good pal, Michael Hoffman. He's the managing director of the Biltmore here. He goes back with me a long way to some many memorable hotels around the world. But he's hit the jackpot right here at the Biltmore in Arizona. And he'll tell us why when he gets back. Again, I want to hear from you on what I said at the opening of the segment. What is your experience these days with the brave new world of tipping. What do you think about it? How do you adapt? How do you adjust? And how do you move forward when everybody is now trying to make it mandatory or crazy? Email me, peter at petergreenberg.com. I want to hear your thoughts. And when we come back, Michael Hoffman joins us right here at the Biltmore as Ion Travel continues right after this.
please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. And we're back, Peter Greenberg, here with you as Ion Travel continues from the legendary Arizona Biltmore here in Phoenix. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I'm pleased to welcome to the show someone who I've known how many years? It's been a while. <laughs> it's been a while. A legendary hotelier in his own right, Michael Hoffman, who's now the big cheese here at the Biltmore. Michael, this hotel, I mean, you go back to 1929, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, I mean... It's, it's, it's a preserved heritage building because the design is so amazing. It's great. You know, the, the textile block that uh, the MacArthur brothers basically incorporated in the design is prevalent throughout the resort, and it's kind of become a staple of what some of the residential and commercial buildings that Franklin Wright designed uh, in the latter part of his career. But this hotel was sort of like the playground. It, it still is. I mean, Marilyn Monroe... I mean, Frank Sinatra, they were everybody who was anybody. You walked down the halls here, they were here. Uh, it was the playground in the 20s and 30s, absolutely. Hollywood used to come here, and, you know, this by was... By train. A, by train, and it was a seasonal hotel, no air conditioning. But the way Frank Lloyd Wright designed the block, there are blocks that actually cut out, and it allowed the air to transfer, and the degree of which the block is cut allows, in the wintertime, the sunlight to permeate into the building, and in the summer, only the daylight, not the heat, to transfer in. So his design was impeccable for the time, and uh, this was all before air conditioning. So he made it livable. And, and look, it was here we are place. in the middle of the Sonoran Desert. I mean, here it is. It's, it's an amazing place. The jewel of the desert, without a doubt. What's changed? Well, recently, uh, you know, our, our ownership group, Blackstone, uh, spent about $170 million here. Uh, they renovated the rooms. Well, uh, let's, but put they that added, let's put that in perspective. When they built the hotel, it maybe cost how much to build it? I have no idea what the cost was at the time. It was a big number. You know, the MacArthur brothers who came from Chicago, fell in love with Arizona, wanted to build a landmark that would draw people to Arizona and the Grand Canyon. And uh, I don't know if you saw the Wonder Bus, which is a replica of the original, which used to drive up to the Grand Canyon and basically serve the guests of the Biltmore on the side of the Grand Canyon uh, during their day trips. Uh, so that was way before anything else was built up there. And it basically put Arizona on the map. What gives this place uh, its timeless allure? I think it's the feeling, it's the sense of place. You know, there's the, the classic design of contrast and release when you come in low ceilings and then you step into the lobby and the lobby opens up and you've got the lights, you've got the textile block, everything kind of comes together and you just feel as if you've entered a home. And I think that's how it starts. And then we've got great staff that kind of basically play the actors that come onto the stage and welcome the guests and look after the guests and make sure they have a great experience while they're with us. Plus, you have a very good staff-to-guest ratio. We have an excellent staff. We have over 1,000 staff when we're fully staffed. Wow. That's usually in the winter. Uh, usually in the winter, and obviously we do fairly well uh, uh, out of season. It just changes. You really have two very different seasons. The clientele base changes, 
Uh, and we are predominantly, obviously, a, a group house, if you will, uh, with three different ballrooms. So the capacity is there to accommodate uh, all kinds of guests and travelers. You, know, you mentioned off-season. I'm a huge fan of the off-season. I would much rather come here in July and August. I know you think I'm crazy, but I do because... I, you know, it's like Palm Springs. Oh, it's a dry heat. I know. My oven is a dry heat, but I don't live there either. However, if you take a look at the way these buildings have been designed and the flow and the architecture and the fact that you can be here without being crowded, that's when I want to come. It is, it is uh, the spacing of the buildings, the spacing of the layout of the, the campus is really very, very unique. And now with the addition of the twist, which is the uh, family slide in the kids' pool, uh, the adult pool, which is kind of a safe haven in the middle of the resort just for adults, and our Spire Bar, which is outdoors. Uh, it's a great place to be in the summer. What's your biggest challenge? Uh, I think uh, the hospitality challenge is staffing Always. across yeah. uh, for everybody. And then I think the, the seasonal variances, uh, you know, high season versus low season, there is uh, a significant change in rate, and you have to adapt to that. But when you talk about staffing, I mean, that's industry-wide, and that really hasn't come back fully since COVID. No, absolutely not. Um, you know, we, I think the, the most important thing is that you provide a, a great culture, a great place for people to want to come to work. And if you can create that inviting sense of workplace, you can actually draw. And we've, we've been very fortunate. Uh, our vacancy rate from a staff ratio is actually fairly low by comparison. We're talking to Michael Hoffman, the general manager, the managing director, the big cheese of the Arizona Biltmore right here in Phoenix, Arizona. When we come back, more with Michael, more with me, and more with you as we return to the Biltmore here in Arizona right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. And we're back again, Peter Greenberg here at the Arizona Biltmore talking to Michael Hoffman, the managing director of the hotel uh, with a great pedigree. I mean, where, just tell everybody where you were before you got here. Most recently, yeah. I was at the Inn at Perry Cabin in St. Michael's, Maryland, on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake Bay. What a delightful hotel. Great hotel. But I knew you also great from hotel. the boulders, not, not far from here. Not far from here. I, this is my second stint in Arizona. I love Arizona. Listen, I've had an amazing career and I've been very, very fortunate. London, Hong Kong, New York. You twice, and I were in Hong Kong. Times. You and I were in Hong Kong in June of '97 when the handover happened. That's correct. Yes. And it was raining that night. It was. Oh uh, my God. A little bit wet. Yes. A little. An indication of where things were going. But you know, it's still a great destination. It is. I'll tell you what happened that night. We were on the roof of the of the Regent, the Four Seasons, right? The original Regent. It was pouring rain. The Britannia was parked next to the uh, the Hyatt on the other side. There's Prince Charles and the governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton. And the bands are playing, and we're on the roof trying to broadcast live for NBC. And I'm not making this up. A lightning bolt came down and hit our cameraman, and nothing happened. I said, okay, we're blessed. And then the minute that the Union Jack came down and the Chinese flag went up, 
the rain stopped and they had the fireworks and the Britannia then limped out of the harbor. I mean, everybody thought, oh, they're sailing back to England. They got about as far as Macau and gave up because that ship was in such bad shape. It's now a museum. But you were there that night and I was there that night. But now we're here in Arizona. In the, in the pandemic, so many people moved out of other cities and they came to places like Arizona, right? Because they could breathe. It had built-in social distancing. Is that still going on? I, there still is uh, Phoenix growth. It continues to be uh, quite incredible. Um, I think it's the lifestyle. It's you know you basically you can be outdoors year round. Yes, it gets a little toasty in July and August, but you work around that, right? You start early in the morning. You uh, get your out golf game is done by nine. Your <laughs> golf game is done by nine, or you go out at six because it only gets better as the sun sets on the horizon, right? You can play until nine o'clock in the summer. So, uh, no, it's a, listen, Arizona is fabulous. And yeah, it is dry heat. So uh, <laughs> I love it here. When people come to this hotel, what's the one thing that surprises them the most? I think the, uh, the grandeur, the, the, the layout, you know, you, you basically can go and you can walk for half an hour and you never cross the same path twice. The beautiful thing about this hotel, it is not a high rise. No. That's, you know, everything's uh, three stories or less. So, and we're keeping it that way um, because that fits into the neighborhood. It was one of the things that Frank Lloyd Wright did very, very well. He was always extremely mindful of the location that he was in and what he was building to not make it a monstrosity, but to make it kind of blend in with the environment. Now, obviously, you've done a huge renovation here as well. You're turning things around. What's the one thing that you were able to do that people kept on saying for years, if you could only change this, what did you do? I think we took the stodginess out of the hotel. We've made it a little hip. We've given it a new flair. Uh, it's fun. It's engaging. You know, here I am, uh, Mr. Double-Breasted Suit and Hermes tie. I'm wearing a pair of sneakers and a single-breasted suit. Um, the hotel has a jump to it. It's got a vibe to it. Uh, it's exciting. Our formal dining room rights has turned into Renato's, which is fun. It's about smoke and heat, tequila. Um, it's a great experience. And I think that's just kind of the beginning. All these things that we're doing, our new Citrus Club, uh, it just it makes it a real fun place to be. You know how I determine a great hotel? You're going to laugh at me. It's the bathrooms, because you spend more waking hours in your bathroom than any other room in the hotel, and if the bathroom works, chances are the rest of the hotel is going to be just okay or better, right? So I judge it by the lighting in the bathroom, by the space on the sinks. That's not me, that's my wife. And whether or not your bathtub is ornamental or actually functional. And your bathtubs are functional. You don't find a lot of bathtubs in hotels anymore. No, I think that, uh, especially in... Uh when you're in the Citrus Club, the rooms that go with the Citrus Club really uh, give you an amazing bath experience. So uh, it's fun. I mean, th things are, that are leaving hotel rooms, dressers are leaving, bathtubs are leaving. If there's a bathtub there, it's like you can't use it. It's just, it's, it's, it's just ornamental, right? And what you have now is you have light, so you can actually see what you're doing. The rooms are light. You're not trapped by mood lighting. And the bathrooms, you can actually... Do things that in, in a way that you're not stumbling around. They're usable. Yeah. And friendly. Yeah, exactly. I believe strongly, and I think you would agree, Michael, that most people who design hotels have never stayed in one. 
I'm convinced. It's true. That. We're very fortunate that uh, the people that were involved in our renovation actually are hoteliers at heart. So they understood water pressure. They understood lighting. They understood the thickness of the carpet, by the way, outside the rooms. I noticed that right away. And the doors were obviously designed to, to blend in with the Frank Lloyd Wright design. Yes, absolutely. It was, it, they took a lot of initiative to maintain some of the integrity that originally was put into the hotel and bring it back and maintain it. And they did a great job. So you're here for a while. I hope so. <laughs> well, I hope so too, because it's great to see you. It's great to be with you today. Thank you. You got it. And that music means we're out of time for the entire hour. In fact, the entire show. A lot of people to thank Amanda Morris doing the production work in New York. Of course, our good friend Anthony Protoschug doing the work right here. Jeff Ryder doing the boards in Connecticut. Madeline Lyon, Madison Labarge, and oh yeah, and you again, Anthony Protoschung, and of course me, Peter Greenberg. We'll see you next week, everybody, from another remote location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.